Hello and welcome back to Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Tour Program podcast where we are joined by experts, strategists, and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Yuka Koshino, IISS Research Fellow for Security and Technology Policy. And I'm Robert Ward, the IISS Japan Chair and Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy. Today we are delighted to have with us、uh, Professor Takahara Akio. He is Director of the JICA Ogata Sadako Research Institute for Peace and Development and Professor of Chinese Politics and International Relations in East Asia at the University of Tokyo. Akio is also a Senior Adjunct Fellow at the Japan Institute of International Affairs, Senior Researcher at the Tokyo Foundation for Policy Research. And distinguished research fellow at the Japan Forum on International Relations. Akio's key research themes encompass contemporary Chinese politics, diplomacy, and Japan China relations. Previously, Akio was also the Secretary General of the New Japan China Friendship 21st Century Committee and member of the Steering Committee of the Sasakawa Japan China Friendship Fund. At the start of his career, he also spent some time as a visiting researcher at the Embassy of Japan in China and the Consulate General of Japan in Hong Kong. Welcome, Akio, and thank you for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you very much for having me today. 2022 marks、uh, 50 years since diplomatic relations started between Japan and the People's Republic of China were normalized. With the signing of the 1972 joint communique, Akio, you've dedicated your career to understanding China and the China-Japan relationship. What, in your view, have been some of the key turning points or major events that have shaped the course of bilateral relations over the past decades? The biggest turning point was 1992, a few years after the end of the Cold War, which changed the security environment of the two nations completely. And also,、uh, it was the time when、uh, Japan's economic bubble had burst economically. And thirdly, in China, that was the year when Deng Xiaoping made his famous Southern Tour and issued the statement to pace up their reform and opening, which introduced great changes in their policies in terms of systemic reforms. Before that, it was Japan that had been rising, and China was not rising yet. Around that time, in the early 1990s, and especially 1992, China started to rise, and Japan started to stagnate economically. And in the following year, in 1993, LDP government fell, and Japan's politics was in flux. That was the time when there was a big change in Japan-China relations, or I should say, the big change started at the early part of the 1990s. Changes in the relations. Came in bits and pieces, but I would pick up 2010 and 2012. They were the years in which big incidents happened around the Senkaku Islands, or what the Chinese call Diaoyu. In 2010, there was the fishing trawler collision incident. The Chinese started to impose economic sanctions. They、uh, severed even cultural relations. Took a very tough stance against the Japanese, which had. Detained the captain, and in 2012, over the issue of the Japanese government purchasing some of the islands of the Senkaku Islands from a private landlord, the Chinese seized this opportunity and started to send a good number of their government vessels, the Coast Guard vessels, into the territorial waters around Senkakus. This had started in 2008, but not in a big way. This has completely changed the pace 
in Japan-China relations, I should say, before that, security was not that important in the relationship, but rather security issues came to the fore and has become a very important factor in defining the relationship. When Xi Jinping and Shinzo Abe came to power in 2012, the relationship was at its lowest. And then in 2014, in November, Xi Jinping finally agreed to have a summit meeting with Abe on the sidelines of APEC that was held in Beijing. Another turning point came in 2017 when Shinzo Abe said very clearly that Japan can cooperate with China's Belt and Road Initiative. And since the Belt and Road Initiative is a signature project of Xi Jinping's, it's a symbol of his authority and power, that became a very important signal that the Chinese took up and moved to improve relations with Japan in a big way, which led to the October 2018 visit by Shinzo Abe, a very successful official visit by the Japanese Prime Minister to Beijing. These were important turning points, I should say, in Japan-China relations in the past. A number of things arise from your sort of sweep of 30 years of Japanese-Chinese relations. You talk about 1992 as a big turning point and China's rise coinciding with Japan's economic problems. In the 90s, do you think Japan missed opportunities to reset relations with China, given how rapidly things were actually changing? Nobody could expect, even in the 90s, that China will keep growing. China's economy will keep growing at this pace. Hardly anybody could predict that that was going to happen. I wouldn't blame the Japanese who were making decisions at that time. Things developed in a way that it would have developed if China was going to grow at such a fast pace. You also mentioned 2010 issue over the Senkaku Dayu Islands. That was a sort of first case, I suppose, first explicit case of China using economic coercion against Japan with its um, ban on the exports of, of certain rare earths uh, to, to Japan. That was, I suppose, a, a sort of full stop on the previous approach of splitting politics and economics that had served Japan well in the, in the 80s. Do you think that given China's rise and given China's um, willingness to resort to economic coercion, do you think that Japan can continue to separate its economic issues, economic interests and foreign policy interests with regard to China? You know, uh, Robert, what's interesting is in 2010, they tried the economic sanctions because they were quite desperate. They gathered all the experts, consulted them what they should do to have the captain released. And some apparently suggested economic sanctions because they now depend more on us than we depend on them. But two years later, when there was a bigger clash diplomatically and tense questions around the islands physically. However, they did not resort to economic sanctions in 2012. Yes, there was looting in China of um, Japanese supermarkets and department stores. They smashed the Japanese restaurants. They arsoned Japanese factories and car dealer shops, but no economic sanctions as, as such. And apparently, they learned that two years earlier, they did impose economic sanctions on Japanese products that could backfire. Uh, because even though the volume or the percentage of their trade with Japan had declined, however, important parts, technology, 
is still being imported from Japan. So quite interesting that uh, economic coercion apparently has not been a very effective tool as far as China's policies towards Japan is concerned. What does that mean for Japan's ability to split economics and foreign policy going forward, do you think? That's what we had been doing. Now our interdependence, economic interdependence with China has developed to such a degree that there's no other choice. That is, economically, we keep on cooperating with the Chinese. In other ways, especially around the security question, we have to compete fiercely with what they are trying to do. They're you know, increasing, exerting pressure in the East China Sea, not only around the Senkakus, on the sea, up in the air. <laughs> we have no choice but to, to compete with them, not only in economics, but also other issues in non-traditional security. We do cooperate with the Chinese a lot. At the end of the day, they are our neighbor. You know? So there is a lot that uh, we, we do together for the national interests of us both. This, I think, is a situation that we have had to face. It's contradictory. Some people cannot take it because psychologically it's difficult to accept that we have to adopt this inherently contradictory approach, uh, what I call the two-pronged approach towards uh, China. But we have to face it. This is the contradiction that we have to live with. That's the current situation. And I think this is going to continue for some time. Interesting point on 1992. And if I may add, 1992 was the apex of the relationship, you know, the friendly relationship that we had. You remember the emperor's visit, uh, which was made that year, very successful. We don't know when the emperor's visit will happen next. <laughs> I was looking at photographs of Deng's uh, visit to Japan in the late, late 1970s and thinking, gosh, how likely would a repeat of something like that be? And I was thinking quite unlikely now. If I went back 50 years, 1978 was also very important as a turning point. 1972, it was still in the midst of the Cultural Revolution. Uh, in 1976, uh, Mao Zedong passed away, and two years later, Deng Xiaoping, then still not the most um, powerful figure in the Chinese government, but uh, he was in charge of di diplomacy, and especially in charge of China's relations with Japan. So he came over and realized that Japan can be a model of China's modernization. And after Deng's visit, uh, a lot of delegations came to Japan to observe and study the Japanese modernization experience. And so that year is also a very important year when we look back at the 50 years of our diplomatic relations. Just picking up on your 2012 point, Takaha-sensei, so the same year Xi Jinping stepped up to the role of CCP General Secretary and Abe Shinzo was elected for the second time as Prime Minister, Abe was a pioneer in conceptualizing Japan's China strategy before his first term in 2006 by describing the bilateral relations as kitte mo kirenai gokei no kanke, meaning that Japan-China relations are inseverable and reciprocal. So while he raised concerns on China's increasing activities around the Senkaku Islands and potential geopolitical and geoeconomic challenges arising from it, he always remained open to having dialogues and made efforts to improve ties with China, as you mentioned, in some of the turning points in 2017 and 2018. So how do you assess former Prime Minister Abe's role in the post-2012 Sino-Japanese relations? And what do you think is his legacy in the bilateral relations? Abe's son did very well in terms of his China policies. 
as you said in his first administration of the first cabinet, uh, he came up with the idea of uh, mutually beneficial strategic relations. Therefore, it's not only strategic, it's not only about security, uh, but also he wanted to develop the economic ties uh, between Japan and China. So a very well-balanced approach was taken. As I was saying, both competition and cooperation, the two-pronged approach was Abe's approach, I would say. And he had the political clout domestically to have his way and persuade all that this was the way uh, forward. A very pragmatic person, Mr. Abe. Uh, perhaps ideologically, he could not agree with some of the statements that the Chinese would make on this and that, especially the history issues and so on. But if you remember the 2015 uh, 70th anniversary of the end of World War II speech that he gave, the statement that he made, it was very good in the sense that he acknowledged all the mistakes that Japan made, the invasion, and expressed his uh, condolences to those who became victims, who sacrificed their lives, was highly appreciated by many circles. So he was a very pragmatic politician who understood the importance of China. I would give a very good mark to him uh, as far as his China policies were concerned. As this year's WIWS Shangri-La Dialogue, Prime Minister Kishida delivered the keynote speech in which he reiterated his commitment to realism diplomacy for a new era. He indirectly condemned the challenges that China is posing to the real space order um, without mentioning China and committed to a substantial increase in defense spending. And also the Q&A session, he also stressed the importance of the Japan-China relationship for the peace and prosperity of the whole international community. What do you think this realism diplomacy entails and how do you assess the effectiveness of such an approach in the current administration? Any Japanese prime minister has to do two things. One is to stand up against Chinese aggression, provocation or challenges that they pose physically, especially in the East China Sea and the South China Seas, because that's what the people want. People want prime minister to stand firm against such provocations. So Kishida is trying to show that he is up to that. But at the same time, the Japanese public understand the importance of China, especially now economically. As I mentioned, the interdependence is so wide and deep. And therefore, if Kishida only emphasized the confrontational or the competition side of things, that's not going to be enough. He's been showing that side of things more up to this point because uh, that's the social atmosphere at the moment, you know, because of events in Hong Kong, because of uh, the COVID, uh, because of what's happening in the East China Sea, the Japanese public are very uh, disappointed and unhappy about what the Chinese government has been doing. So he understands that sentiment, he understands that atmosphere. When it comes to the reality of the relationship, it includes both not only the security side of things, but also the economic side of things. Now that especially the House of Councillors elections are over and the 50th anniversary is, is coming, and not only Japan, but also China understands that uh, we have to enter this phase of reconciliation, moving forward together. Uh, so gradually things should move in that direction. And that was perhaps represented by the seven-hour meeting that was held between Mr. Akiba, 
the chief of the National Security Secretariat and um, Yan Jiechi, the top guy in China in charge of diplomacy. And that was held exactly two weeks ago. Do you think Chinese government understands that Japan has to do these two things? Or do you think they're more concerned by these developments in Japan? Basically, the Chinese leadership understands Japan's position. Increasingly, they are obsessed with this competition with the U.S. Some people tend to see all the things happening in the world through the lens of the strategic competition with the United States. They see the war in Ukraine through this lens. So if you remember, even when Putin was about to invade or even just after invading Ukraine, what the foreign ministry spokesperson says is all about America, criticizing America. You know, they're obsessed with this competition with the U U.S. So whatever Japan does, some people see that, oh, once again, Japan is trying to please the Americans. You know, they're just following. That's not correct, right? That's not an accurate view of the world. That's not an accurate view of Japan. At the core part of the leadership, I still think that um, they understand what the Japanese side really wants. You know, it's not all competition, certainly not. We know that we have to coexist with China because we are neighbors after all. So both sides feel this need to coexist while we compete. <laughs> I'll give you one example. You know, the free and open in the Pacific, the Chinese side understands the distinction or the difference between the Japanese version of the free and open in the Pacific uh, vision and the United States version of the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. If you read, for example, the long, long joint statement that was issued by Putin and Xi Jinping when uh, Putin visited Beijing on the 4th of February this year at the Beijing Olympic Games, if you remember, that's only half a year ago, it criticizes the free and open Indo-Pacific. But specifically, what they say is that they criticize the American strategy of the free and open in the Pacific. So they sort of intentionally make the distinction uh, between uh, Japan's version and the US uh, version. So they are sort of leaving room uh, for cooperation between the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, and the free and open in the Pacific vision of the Japanese side. Uh, so it's a very interesting situation now. Increasingly, there are more people in China who see Japan through the lens of their competition with US. Uh, so that is worrisome. That is uh, something that we should worry about. Interesting, you, you mentioned about the differences between, China understands the difference between the FOIP in, in Japan and the U.S. I remember that back in 2017, I was in D.C., but um, Japanese were also concerned about what U.S. FOIP and trying to distinguish that. And, and a lot of officials were visiting D.C. to say that, you know, it was basically an inclusive diplomatic concept. But speaking of the, the U.S., the U.S. is also, you know, as you mentioned, key factor in the bilateral relationship. This was still evident, I think, when, when China canceled the foreign ministers meeting after the U.S. House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan from August 2nd to 3rd. But how did Japan's side view this visit and its impact on the region's security or the bilateral relations with China? And what do you think the subsequent reactions by China to Pelosi's visit and the large-scale military drills that followed mean for uh, regional stability, as well as Xi's calculation concerning his ambitions towards the reunification with Taiwan. 
I think many Japanese are asking, has Pelosi's visit actually made Taiwan's security situation better? Most of the people would say no, probably. <laughs> you know, uh, The Chinese did not react while Pelosi was visiting or before Pelosi visited so as to block or disrupt Pelosi's visit. And this made the Chinese um, public rather angry. They saw the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, was a paper tiger. But anyhow, afterwards, they started to launch all sorts of um, military exercises that they had not done before, you know, surrounding the island and so on and so forth. This is what they are good at, salami slicing. Yeah, uh, They did the same uh, 10 years ago uh, when the Japanese government purchased the islands from this uh, landlord. Then they seized that opportunity and started doing things that they dared not do before. So the same thing is happening now. And the second point is, you know, Pelosi in the statement or in her writing uh, that, he, that she contributed to a U.S. newspaper, uh, she made the statement that, you know, look at what happened in U Ukraine. There is this competition between autocracy and democracy. So... We are going to Taiwan to show that America stands firmly on the side of democracy, things like that. So those words are beautiful. They are fine. Emotionally, you know how much the Japanese love the Taiwanese and love Taiwan. But in reality, is that really going to help us all? You know, uh, how will that be received by the rest of the world? I mean, in the so-called free world, that sounds very good, resonates, and we all agree with what she says. From the perspective of the majority of the nations in the world, the developing world, now I call this the new third world, <laughs> uh, who are outside this competition of autocracy and, and democracy. The new third world will not buy this argument. Uh, they are very cynical about uh, such statements that come out of um, President Biden and Speaker Pelosi. I think we should consider the fact that in Africa or in Asia or even in Latin America, Russians can be very popular. China can be very popular, not only because those countries buy a lot of grain and import a lot of energy from uh, Russia, but rather because Russia seems to be a representative of the anti-Western world. <laughs> uh, they don't like to be preached by all these ex-colonial nations. We should be very sensitive about such sentiment that exists in the new third world. Just to, uh, to take a quick look at China's domestic politics now with, with a sort of Japanese lens, if we may. This year, clearly a significant year for Xi Jinping as General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. The, the, the CCP's 20th National Congress was, it will take place in uh, mid-October. We may see him securing a president-defying third term. How stable do you think Xi Jinping's power base is and, and what are the implications of a third term for Japan? The power base is very solid. Most likely he will be the top leader for many more years to come. That doesn't really bode well for the stability of China as a whole. <laughs> Chinese economic growth is going to slow down even further. I don't think Xi Jinping can come up with very radical, innovative reform measures to improve the situation. We read the report of his speech that was given on the 26th of July, which set the tone for the party congress that will come in three months' time from then. 
and nothing novel. Couldn't see any breakthrough, as it were, in changing the stalemate or to change this decline in the growth rate, which is a basic problem for employment and fiscal income. Is that good for Japan? Of course not. Economically,、uh, we would want a stable growth in the Chinese economy. And politically, if that is going to destabilize Chinese politics, that won't be good for anybody. We would rather like to have a strong person as the leader because only with a solid power base, a Chinese leader can extend a friendly hand towards Japan. Relations with Japan can be a very sensitive political issue, easily taken up by the rival of the political leader to criticize him. You are being too soft, you're weak kneed. Therefore, we want a strong leader. So Xi Jinping meets that condition. At the same time, it implies that he is a very hardline orientated policymaker when it comes to external policies. Basically, it's better for the leader to be very powerful in order to improve relations with Japan. If he cannot handle the domestic issues well, Uh, that is not going to be good for anybody, including Japan. As you say, absolutely rightly. I mean, his, his third term would coincide with quite an intensification of China's economic structural problems, all the, the issues with the property market, demographic issues as well, coupled with a far less hospitable external environment. So I think China's economy is going to have some headwinds、uh, in the next few years. We are very worried about that. If that is going to decrease the pace of the Um, military development, of course, the security people will be very happy. I mean, we all will be very happy, but it's not all that good, right?、Uh, because、uh, we should see the relationship in a comprehensive way.、Uh, and when we think about our own economic difficulties,、uh, we would like a stable development happening in China. You touched briefly a moment ago on the Sino Russia relationship. How do you assess this relationship, how it might evolve, and what do you think the impact would be on Japan and perhaps the region? The Chinese and the Russians do the military drills together around Japan. They sent their bombers flying together when Biden was here in late May. And、they do those things. We should be concerned about that. I think because of the war in the Ukraine, Russia's power is going to decline. Many Chinese predict that. They're wondering if it's a good idea to maintain the current very close relationship that they have with Moscow. Xi Jinping has said it very clear the second day of the invasion on the 25th of February when he spoke with Putin on the phone that according to the Russian report of the meeting, Xi Jinping stressed he respects the decision taken by the Russian leader at such a critical moment. So he virtually endorsed Putin's all out invasion. And once Xi Jinping says those things, it's very difficult to change the policy. Despite the fact that many Chinese started to question this position, the next meeting was held on Xi Jinping's birthday, that's 15th of June. And then once again, Xi Jinping repeated his endorsement. And then those other voices in China became quiet again. But we'll see. The party congress is coming, and there's a lot of jockeying for positions going on. Maybe some people will start saying those things again. It's all related to internal power struggle.
coming back to Russia, China, economic clout, military clout, although the pace of growth could go down, it's still going to go up while Russia's will go, go down, which means that Russia will fall into this um, junior partner position even further. That's the most likely result. Moscow will have to depend on Beijing on many things, including the market for their energy and so on. The two countries will still need each other, especially both of them see the world through the lens of their strategic competition with the United States. The two leaders have a very similar view of the world. They want to tell their people that democracy is failing, a new order is emerging, and it's going to be China and Russia that will lead this new world order. They have very similar interests in pursuing that line. Uh, so the relationship for the time being will become closer and closer. Despite the current state of the bilateral relations, what might be a potential channels or opportunities of areas for cooperation between Japan and China? There's a lot that currently going on. Of course, economic cooperation is one. We're not doing as well as the Americans on the economic front because America's trade with China in the first half of this year increased in double digits. Whereas our trade with China uh, decreased because of the lockdown around Shanghai, that continues. Also, cooperation over anti-piracy and anti-drug trafficking and environmental issues, energy saving, climate change, we'll have discussions. Potentially, if things go down even further around North Korea, we will have to talk with the Chinese uh, even more in intensely about that. So there's a lot of material for cooperation. Thank you very much for that positive note. I have so many more questions that I want to ask, but we're coming to an end of the Japan Memo episode. So uh, we have two questions for you that we ask to all the participants. So the first one would be, do you have a book recommendation for listeners who wish to understand Japan? My answer is no. <laughs> I don't think you can understand any country by one book. And if you really want to understand current Japan, the best way is for one week, just read any of the Japanese major papers. You know, they have English versions now. Just follow it very closely for one week. And roughly you will understand what's going on in its society, in its economy, in its politics. Uh, so that's what I would recommend. And our, our second question is, what do you think people often get wrong about Japan? Before Abe came to power, people used to think that Japan was just going downhill and they come to Japan and find out that that's not the case. Economic GDP growth rate is one thing, but that does not represent the total way of how people live. Even without GDP growth, our lives have become much more convenient, much richer because of technological development. Japanese tend to be very masochistic. You know, we love criticizing our, ourselves. <laughs> I hear many people around me, even yesterday and today, saying, oh, we are doing badly here. But compared to other countries, I think Japan has done rather well. It's very good at this very moment. But of course, we should not lower our guard or we should not be too complacent. There are so many issues long-term and short-term that we have to deal with, we are not declining that much. <laughs> uh, we are all um, okay as long as you have a job and the unemployment rate is so low. 
about full employment stage. We are going to be short of labor. We are already short of la labor. We are not in a situation that is as bad as many people who uh, only read Western media. <laughs> Another thing is, many people think Japan is always quarreling with China, but that's not true. Look at October 2018, Abe's visit to, to China. So successful. Japan-China relations has two aspects. One is the very fragile aspect, and it also has the resilient aspect in the relations. If not for the resilience in the relationship, after six years, you know, 2012, the big clash, it would not have been able to improve to that position in 2018. Now it's downhill a little bit, but I'm not too pessimistic. It's going to go up again, but we have to do our best to maintain peace with China, which is a big task to do. If we can keep peace for another 20 years, 30 years, then I think we'll be all right. I like your characterization of bilateral relations as fragile, but yet resilient. That's a nice conundrum to end on, a nice way of describing this relationship. Thank you so much, uh, Akio, for this very rich discussion that, that's really covered more than 30 years of bilateral history so i think we've covered a lot of ground and thank you also to our listeners for joining us on a, another episode of japan memo if you enjoyed this episode i encourage you to look at past research by the japan chair program and the iiss on our website www.iiss.org we also hope to connect with you on twitter where we are actively sharing the latest news and analysis on everything japanese geopolitics and more you can find us at at robert allen ward and at Yuka Koshino. Thank you very much.